Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. We're also joined by Chris Verone, head of technical analysis at Strategus Research Partners. Tonight on Fast, shady Trump trades are just pure luck. A new bombshell report raises the red flag on a series of big money moves in the futures pits. Our traders front-running the president's next big move. The man who wrote this explosive story, William Cohen, joins us straight ahead. Plus... Stranger things happening to Netflix, why the stock struggled to hold the crown following yesterday's blockbuster report, and later, a soda pop, what you can expect from Coca-Cola when it reports earnings tomorrow. But we begin tonight's show with bonds, treasury bonds. That's because something big is shaking and stirring the market. If you haven't been paying attention, bonds have staged a great reversal, sending yields back to their highest levels in a month. So is this the official end of the big bull bond market? I love the bootleg bond music, by the way. This well, it's probably because we're not allowed to use the real ones. So no, this is, a, this is a real song. You know, I know, is, but this isn't really bond no, it's music. Not bond it's, it's, music. Like, it's like bond music. But I hear the lyrics, there's a man who leads a life of danger. That's Tim Seymour, well, man. I did ride my city bike on right? the way over to the, to the, to the studio. Secret, Secret agent, man. Right. It's great. Agent. Johnny Rivers. Yes. Why are you looking at me quizzically? I'm, I'm asking you, is this no, the end of the no, bond no, market? No, I don't think it is, Mel. And listen, I could be proven to be wrong, as I typically am on any given night. But I think bond yields are going lower. Listen, bond yields go higher because economies are improving. Maybe there's a somewhat of improvement, but I think we're in this... We're at the beginning of a turn, and I think you're seeing it in manufacturing. I think you're going to start to see it here in terms of earnings when a lot of these industrials report. So although the bond market has had a big move from in the 10-year from 147 to 178, where we are now, Mm -hmm. I think as long as the TLT, in my opinion, stays above 135, it's 139.5 now. I think the bond move is intact. I think yields go lower. Some of the scary stuff has gone away, though, or is, has abated. Brexit looks less bad. Yeah. China trade looks less bad. There's now chatter that the Fed will pause um, this sort of, I don't want to say cycle of adjustments, but, you know, this could be a, a, a mid-cycle pause. Well, I might take that further. I would say bond yields recently have become more immune to bad news as well. Remember, October 1st, we print a 47 on PMI. Bond yields are 170 that day. They trade all the way back down to 150. Yesterday, we missed retail sales. Today, we missed housing starts. Bond yields are now back above 175. So there's a message there of some immunity to bad news. All right, we got some breaking news here on the United Auto Workers strike. Jane Wells has got the latest. Jane. Hey, guys, we, in just a minute, I've been trying to just, I'm going to go off camera here for a second. Hold on. Peek around the corner. Just keep, they're coming up. Yeah. Uh, they are not yet, but any moment uh, the uh, UAW leadership and the local presidents are going to hold a news conference. What CNBC has learned is two things. Someone inside the meeting came out and told us that the union leadership has convinced the 200 local chapter presidents to ratify the vote and send to ratify the contract and send it to the rank and file for a vote. But here is what we are also learning. According to the local NBC affiliate in Detroit, uh, that those 200 local chapter presidents have also decided that workers will not come back to work until the ratification vote is completed. And that at the deadline, according to the local affiliate, is a week from tomorrow. So that means, very bold move by the leadership, that they would be out of work for yet another week. It's already been over four weeks that they've been out of work. Uh, one of the big holdups, I mean, they were in there for over 
uh, six hours today. We thought, what, what's going on? One of the holdups may have been that there is a second strike going on at GM right, right now with the maintenance workers. The UAW workers didn't want to cross that picket line. Reuters is reporting that GM now has a tentative agreement with those janitors. So that hurdle has been crossed. I think one of the biggest issues still facing this vote, despite all the, the $11,000 ratification bonus and very, very great and low health care costs, the Lordstown plant in Ohio will be closed. And for some members here today, that will be a, de a deal breaker when it goes out to the rank and file. We'll just have to see. Guys? All right. Jane, thank you. Jane Wells um, with the latest on the UAW strike. The problem here is that the cost, the estimated cost, which is now at about $2 billion to GM for the strike, will continue ticking higher as long as these workers remain off the job. Although the reason they're remaining off the job is because there's a deal that's not cut that GM wants to hold, certainly their line of a, of a negotiation. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, first of all, it was deal day, right? We had, we had GM, we had Brexit, we had Turkey, we had a lot of big news. And, and to the extent that this is a term, this doesn't change, I don't think any of these deals, and we're going to talk about that as we get back into our other segment. For GM, uh, the story is not about this strike. The, the story is really people trying to view where their most profitable models lie, whether it's North America, SUV markets, where we are in the global auto cycle. Um, Strike workers are getting more pay. The union's pretty robust and pretty full right now and able to hold out for a better deal. I don't think, if you're trading GM stock right now, this to me is not an indicator of something you should trade on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we talked about it last night. I mean, I remember I said, what year is it? And you looked at me like, what's your problem as you, as your, as your want to do? And I, I said, well, this time that. in 2014, GM was 36 and a half, and that's where it is now. So, I mean, if GM can't rally over the last five years when the stock market's basically going nothing but higher in an environment where the, the car industry's been the best it's been in its history, then when is it going to rally? And my answer is it's not. What's the chart look like to you? The chart's, guy's right. The chart's been dead money for a long time. But what I think is interesting if you get something to go right here, you've already seen some competitors break out. Volkswagen's breaking out. Toyota's breaking out. So maybe there's some pent-up demand for auto stocks, but this has to get resolved. Okay. Um, let's get back to our bond discussion here. We were talking about whether or not the great bond bull market was, in fact, over. Dan, I feel like you're going to say it's not. Uh, it is not. Um, I mean, I don't say that definitively because, Chris Verone, I don't know. But what, here's one thing I do know. If you take a chart of the 10-year Treasury yield over the last 30 years, the last 20 years, it is the most well-defined downtrend you have ever seen. And if you look over the last 20 years, if you look at the high in late 1999, close to what? Almost seven and a half percent or maybe a little higher than that. What came after that was a 50 percent drop in the S&P 500. And then we had this move back up in rates to 2007 in November, and it topped out again somewhere above 5%. And then what have we been doing? 2012, we, we did have another S&P get cut in half, okay, right after that. And then we had a 145 print in the summer of 2012 in the 10-year. We had 2016, a retest of that. And then we've almost had that again here. Triple and bottom. The, so, well, I don't think there's anything... I don't think there are triple bottoms. And the more times that you test that low after such a sustained period of weakness, I'd say they're going lower. So you know? And then, then take it one step further, stocks are back in, again, at all-time highs. So where do you think that's going to go if yields go lower here? Well, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up those dates. If you look at the 10-year yield on a rate of change basis, the year-over-year -year change in 10-year yields is down 50%. Yields have been cut in half over the last year. It's happened two other times in history. 
January, February of 09, and summer of 12, right? Both of those times put in tradable lows in bond yields. And they also put in good tradable advances in stocks. And I think when you look at the character of the equity market recently, it is more cyclical. Semis outperforming, trucks acting better, uh, rest of world a little bit better. So I'm just curious if a tradable low in bond yields is being put in here. And I would also know, look at some of the global yields. German yields bottomed about six weeks ago. Chinese yields bottomed six weeks ago. Japanese yields have turned. So I think there's an option to be a trader here with the bond market. I don't think so. Remember, low, low yields have not been good for equities in the last three to six months, right? Low yields have been fear. Low yields have been people very concerned about global growth. Reminded me a little bit of Q1 2016, mm-hmm. which got you to that low that you talked about, Dan. And I, I agree. I mean, if you look at the 10 year uh, chart back 30 years, 12, 16, and 19, it's the exact same place where we've stopped and we've bounced. And the question is, really, in a world where central banks, though, during that time, have thrown more money on the problem, I think we have a global deflation problem. No matter what you say, um, I, I think we are fighting deflation. We are fighting a credit bubble. And the biggest problem that is the aftermath of a credit bubble, it's a cancer that needs to be carved out. And while it was maybe carved out of the private sector and possibly the housing market, it was transferred to the public sector. And, and that's something that concerns me. So um, I think until central banks reel in uh, these enormous uh, this slug of liquidity, we still have, this is financial oppression for most people. This is terrible hey, for listen, savers. It, it's it not was even actually, working for asset prices. It was transferred to other places, too. WeWork is Exhibit A. WeWork yep. would have been a $47 billion valuation if rates weren't as low as they were for as long as they were. And if there weren't these unfunded pensions that were looking for returns that they can't get anymore because of the situation that we've been in with the rates where they are. So, I mean, it is very cyclical, and it doesn't end particularly well. And my only point is, it probably ends with rates much lower than they are here. And we see that globally because central banks have had no choice almost everywhere else other than here to take their, you know, their yields negative. So the three of you guys think that we're, we haven't hit bottom necessarily or that... I would always like that chance to have to kind of put a caveat on this or put some context okay. on it. I, I think over what we've seen over the last three to six months, which was, by the way, by any measure, a historic move in bond yields, as Chris pointed out. Um, but I, I would say that in the so because of that, I actually think bond yields were basically overbought. In other words, yields had gone too low too fast. Um, I think if you look at where we are uh, in the context of the next three to five years um, right now, I think it's going to be tough to stop where we are. Let me make two points. When you look at positioning right here, just be very mindful of how crowded the long side of the bond market is. <clears throat> Flows into the TLT are at a record high right now. So a lot has to go right from here for the bond bull story to keep working because everyone's already there. And I think the second thing, the bond yields today, I think, are reflecting or the data today is reflecting what bond yields have been telling you for two years. We know the economy has slowed. I think the question is, after two years of lower bond yields, is that starting to get stimulative for the economy here? You already have a German PMI at 41. What's the worst that goes from here? Maybe 38, right? So is that already discounted in stuff like autos and housing and well, semis, these, these, these leading groups? Germany, Germany is as big of a reason why we are at 144 yeah. um, on our lows. The other issue for the bond bears, meaning yields go higher, that's what happens, yields go up uh, when bonds sell off, is that the Treasury has to refund an enormous amount of U.S. Treasury. So there are technical reasons, especially in the long end of the curve, when you look at what this U.S. government needs to finance in terms of a deficit and where we are in terms of the size of the balance sheet and the technicals 
say that bond yields are going higher. Uh, and the question is, ultimately, what does that mean for that triple B tranche of credit out there that right now is trading at 175 over? And that is something that the minute it starts to widen out, it's going to have huge ramifications, which will send bond yields back lower. So basically, you're worried about the fallen angels effect. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Um, they slow down. What, what are the implications? I mean, let, let, I know you guys don't think that the bond or you don't think the bond bull market is over. No. So what is the implication for the safety trades in the markets that have gotten so much love? Safety trades like the utilities, for yeah. example. I think they can. Conti- Listen, I think they continue to go higher. We had a guest on last Even night from these valuations. Mr. Dan Suzuki, if you recall, and I think one of his long trades in this environment were utilities. So I would agree with them. And I understand valuations are stretched, but just to add a caveat to Tim's caveat, I think we're going to know a lot more next week when Caterpillar reports, I believe, on Wednesday, and names like Roper and Triple M report on Thursday, these deep cyclical industrial names. Let's see what they say. I don't think it's going to be particularly good. And if it's not, I think yields go lower. Yeah. I think those defensive groups are remarkably crowded here. So if they're going to continue to work, things really have to go in that direction. So when you look at some of the more cyclically oriented groups, and I think there are cyclical green shoots starting to show up here. You see it with deer breaking out. We talked about that this week. You see it with semis outperforming software. That's a big change in the character of the market. You see it with some of the Chinese consumer names starting to act better. If there's some cyclical green shoots there, I would be careful in these defensive groups. They're crowded, and I would be careful on the long side of the bond market. It's crowded as well. I think you need to watch copper, because if, yeah. you, if, you, if you look at a chart of copper, HG1, it is trailed. Sorry, it's been totally correlated, uh, possibly even led the 10-year. But, but I, I, I think... I still want to see how we how we trade across Europe, because I think that the, the bun curve is incredibly important. A Brexit deal, by the way, also for the dollar um, may also put dollar bulls on their back foot for the first time in a long time, because if you think about that Dixie basket, it's 60 percent euro. And, and at least structurally, you have a place where actually in terms of current account and whatnot, actually the Europe, the, the euro should actually be rallying here. You know what's remarkable here, though, is what we haven't touched on. The yield curve is actually steepening, right? It got so much attention when it inverted. I don't recall a lot of attention as it's become uninverted here. So three-month, ten-year is the widest it's been in six or seven months. Twos and tens are now comfortably Look positive. Done. Right? So I just wonder, is that another sign of this cyclical green shoot starting to show up? Yeah, well, and the other side of that, though, going back to, like, Staples, the safety trade, you know, Procter & Gamble was trading $70 mid-2018, yeah. and it just touched a 125. This is, like, the steepest breakout this stock has ever had, and it's just been a ramp. And what has it done over the last couple of weeks as yields have come back a little bit? It's starting to roll over, and it's below that uptrend that's been in place. I just don't think you want to be long Procter & Gamble above 120 trade oil. It's 116 right now. Um, you know, trading at 25 times expected mid to high single digits earnings growth just for that dividend, just because you think it's defensive. And that obviously goes for utilities and it might go for REITs, too. Coming up, Netflix losing steam after a big earnings rally. Are even stranger things in store for the streaming giant? We will weigh in. And later, the bombshell report that's got all of Wall Street talking. Our futures traders front running President Trump's market moving remarks. The Vanity Fair correspondent behind that big story will join us. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix surging after the close yesterday on an earnings beat. But the stock lost a lot of those gains today after analysts who had more time to digest the subscriber miss um, said that would weigh the com- on the company. Netflix also getting hit with a downgrade today by analysts at Macquarie. firm saying while the third quarter was comforting, competition is coming and that the company does not look cheap compared to its streaming peers. Does the sputtering after yesterday's surge mean the Netflix binge is over and we were pretty skeptical of of the quarter and the stock reaction yesterday. Yeah, I think we've actually done a decent job in Netflix and we we said, you know, it's might trade up to 317, 50% retracement of the all-time high, the recent low down to 252. In the aftermarket, that's exactly where it went last night. Today it traded, I think, almost five <laughs> times normal volume, gave up most of the gains and again, if you go back and look at the guidance, it wasn't particularly strong. I know there in in international subs beat significantly. But then you hear what they said for next quarter. It's not all that awe-inspiring. I will like Netflix again, but I think it told you everything you need to know in terms of the price action today. I mean, it was up more than 8%. Yesterday yeah. after the battle. Well, I think, remember a couple weeks ago, I think I duty you. We had that thing, wow. remember, where Disney did this and that Netflix did so that. Often, no, no, I mean, but, but, but I think what was very clear is that the sentiment for no right good now. I'm reason. i this until you tell me what it means. No, one was going, this one was going this way, the other one was going the other way. What I'm saying is, is that okay. obviously we had Disney, we had Comcast, we had AT&T. All the ones who had kind of vertically integrated, they were all going berserk, right, over the, the better part of this year. And since July, Netflix has been going the other way, right? Sentiment uh, got a little too weak. That got guidance that they gave in July was really bad. And so when you're digesting this last night with a stock trading up 8%, you're saying to yourself, wow, those North American subs weren't great two quarters in a row. Yep. The, the, the international subs... I don't think international was extraordinary. So, so what you're saying, it, was, it was a relief. Yeah, right. So and that's it's just a saying. short squeeze and the sentiment was really bad. So I, I actually think it makes sense. This is a horrible close for the stock. Horrible trading action today. It, it, it's likely to... It recast. actually got all the way back down to the 285 level yeah. that it was before the, the earnings yesterday. Mm-hmm. Intraday today. Um, Reed Hastings letter of assurance to to the world, to shareholders, to whoever it was, wasn't terribly reassuring. I mean, his point was that, look, there's a lot of competition out there, but the addressable market is growing. Everybody knows what's going. Everybody knows people are streaming. Everybody knows. Um, I, I just, I, I, we rewarded Netflix in 2017 and 18 for being able to raise prices and pass them through to consumers. Do you really think they're going to be able to do that? I don't think so. And I, and I think the stock's performance was absolutely a short cover of epic proportions. I agree. And I think when you look at the picture, I mean, this is a this is a chart that peaked in relative terms almost 18 months ago, right? So the relative money in this stock 18. was made in the spring of 2018, not in 2019. Yep. And then when you look at the action today, Dan, you're right, it, the it was awful price action today. Yeah. Then on top of that, you think, okay, what are some of the competitors doing? Well, Disney was up today sharply. Charter traded well. Comcast traded well. So this seems to be a Netflix problem. It's been in the chart for 18 months, and I think you sell rallies until the facts change. All right. For more on Netflix, head on over to our website, CNBC.com. We've got much more Fast Money straight ahead. Here's what's coming up next. A bombshell report that's got all Wall Street talking today. Were futures traders reaping billions of dollars by front-running the president's market-moving remarks? We'll talk with Vanity Fair's William Cohan about whether his argument holds water. And later, how options traders are betting on Coca-Cola earnings out tomorrow morning. We'll break it all down when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. 
and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. We've got a news alert on AT&T. Let's get to Julia Borson with the details. Julia. Melissa Elliott management has sent its letter to the board of directors of AT&T outlining it's what it's calling a compelling value creation opportunity for AT&T. The letter, which is addressed to the company's board, says that the opportunity could lead AT&T to a 60 plus dollar per share value by the end of 2021, which would represent a 65 percent upside today's share price. Um, and this letter says that Elliott made the investment in AT&T among its largest ever because it says AT&T exhibits a unique combination of historical underperformance, a depressed valuation, well-positioned assets, and a clear path forward to generate extraordinary value for shareholders and other stakeholders. Um, this letter, which we're looking at right now, um, outlines in time um, the fact that uh, sort of how they have seen long-term underperformance and what they would like to do to fix it. You see AT&T shares uh, up less than 1% in extended hours trading. Back to you. All right, Julia. Thank you, Julia Borson in Los Angeles. This is a fairly... I mean, if they do resolve this, it was a very short campaign for AT&T. And will we actually see the, the full value of this? I'm not sure what resolve means here. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they, they want to see actually outsiders brought in. They want to break up the old boys network inside of AT&T. I'd love to see that. I'm a shareholder in AT&T. Yeah. I mean, go Elliot. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the value in the sum of the parts, which is I know something you could have been doing since the days are long. And, and as they talked about, it's been an underperformer. But um, I think the inherent value, the intrinsic value in those streaming pieces, in those media pieces, and in their core, uh, their core wireless business, which they've, I think, gotten under control is attractive. Um, so basically, uh, AT&T and Elliott are discussing items including a strategic review as well as board changes, and AT&T could reach the agreement with Elliott as soon as this month, according to sources Dow Jones is reporting. Look, so, ba- balance sheet was a concern, you know, this time last year where everybody was talking about a stock was $31. There were huge concerns in terms of what they were going to do. Those seem to have sort of abated a little bit, but it's interesting to every Elliott who thinks it's going to 60, you have Bernstein who initiated yesterday underperformer, market performer, the $36 price target. I do think there's upside 42 and a half is sort of a level. Are you an Elliott or a Bernstein guy? I'm somewhere in between, Tim. And I don't, you know, I typically like to answer the question, but in this case, I find myself somewhere in between. I know you guys are talking about something completely different. No, we're not. There's there's no innuendo there. Not at all. Or or Sanford Bernstein? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, truly. There was was nothing going on. Nothing. The look that you guys had. All right. (laughs) Uh, let's move on here. It's no secret that President Trump's comments have the ability to move markets, perhaps none more so than what he says about trade. But the timing of his statements is far from predictable, and some recent market activity has our next guest wondering if something fishy could be going on. Vanity Fair's William Cohen just published a new bombshell article titled The Fantastically Profitable Mystery of the Trump Chaos Trades. In it, he highlights three blockbuster trades that he says should ring alarm bells for regulators. 
trade number one. On June 28th, an investor or group of investors bought 420,000 S&P E-mini contracts minutes before the markets closed. The next day, President Trump emerged from meetings with China's President Xi and said trade talks are back on track. The market shot up and the trader made off with $1.8 billion. Trade number two. On August 23rd, in the last 10 minutes of trading, a purchase of 386,000 contracts crossed the wire. Three days later, Trump claimed he got a call from China to restart trade talks. The S&P shot up 80 points, and the trader made $1.5 billion. Trade number three. On September 10th, a trader bought 82,000 contracts in the last 10 minutes of trading. Hours later, China said they would lift tariffs on U.S. goods. The markets popped, and the trader walked away with $190 million. Vanity Fair special correspondent William Cohen joins us now. Bill, welcome. Great to see you. Great to be here. Thank what's, you. What's the allegation here? No allegations. No allegation. Observations. Okay. Traders who I talked to who've been doing this for longer than almost I've been alive have been noticing this very strange phenomenon that every time Trump talks, uh, especially when he talks about trade, uh, the market reacts either up or down, depending on what he says. And people are putting in these trades, you know, few minutes before the close of trading. And it's obviously not just one person. It's probably a group of traders or some sort of coordinated effort because the number of e-mini contracts bought is too large for one individual at any one time. But clearly, traders in the pits at the CME have been noticing this and have been wondering what's going on. So I'm just being reportorial. I'm hearing this Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm laying it out there for people to consider. But embedded in this, in stringing these facts together... Sure is the notion that perhaps these traders or group of traders could have been tipped off if they're placing large trades minutes before the market closes on information that has not been disseminated publicly yet. Insider trading. It's so no different. Okay. Right. It's, frankly, it's no different to you. I was an M&A guy for 17 years. You know, if I work on a merger and next thing you know, you see that the stock price is going up before there's an announcement, which basically happens all the time, and then the SEC investigates that when Amazon buys Whole Foods and next thing you see, Whole Foods' stock is shooting up, merger gets announced, SEC investigates that. I'm saying there are regulators here, the SEC, the CME, the exchange, and the CFTC, the futures regulator. They should be investigating these trades. Maybe there's nothing there, but it sure looks coincidental, fortunate, and a little sketchy to the people who are trading these, these, these future contracts every day. On the surface, it does look fishy. Sketchy. It looks suspicious. Yes. At the same time, I mean, it, it, it almost seems like you could cherry pick on any given day large trades in, in decent volumes. One of the trades, the June 28th trade, was actually 32, 32% of the day's volume. So that was, that was unusual volume. That's what but, got people's but attention. You, but you could go on any other day, perhaps, and string together a number of other circumstances and say, those are suspicious, too. Look, you know, you could... <laughs> You guys are all traders, right? You could do that trading every second of every day. There's always a buyer, always a seller. I'm just being repertorial. People are telling me that they notice an inconsistency. People are making outsized money, making outsized bets with perfect timing, and then there's news related to it. I mean, who actually knows this news about the Trump trade talks, the tariff talks, how they're going? Not a lot of people, but there seems to be a dissemination of that information somehow Just like, you know, not a lot of people know that Amazon wants to buy Whole Foods, but sometimes people get that information 
and trade on it, and the SEC investigates. I guess really what I'm saying here is there's a strange pattern of trading behavior. Mm -hmm. Let's get the regulators looking at it. And instead of being flippant and indifferent, which they basically were to me, then why not look at it? Maybe there is nothing, but somebody's making a lot of money. That's, of course, assuming they sold. And obviously, who knows how many people are involved. So we don't know how the trades closed. I'm just... uh, you know, I'm just a reporter like you guys. How I did mean. we come up with those those uh, gain amounts, though? In other words, um, so you don't know where they got out of the trade. So how do we know it was a one point eight billion dollar? No, we know we were just taking we took. If you read the article, you'll see that there were discrete periods of time that were taken because we had to make some assumption about the time period. So, you know, a week goes by. The S&P is up 80 points. You know, they when did they buy? The, the exchange, the the mini at that point divided by fifty dollars a point times the number of contracts so they had. To, to, and I didn't read the article. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, my point is, I want you to explain it. Yeah. Did did is it through the end of that run in the S and P that you're taking yeah, the profit? Basically, yes. Okay. So well, you know, until the news cycle changed or the S and P momentum changes. So yes. well, and there's no guarantee, obviously, that anybody took those profits. They may have held on to them and lost them. Right. Bill, implicit in this discussion is the idea that uh, the market will perceive the news as you and I may perceive the news. But I think, as we all know, markets perceive news however they choose, right? So we sit here, and the S&P is at an all-time high, roughly, yet there's talk of Brexit, impeachment, China trade, right? So um, what I struggle with in the piece, and I read the piece, is the idea that even with the, quote, inside information as you talk about, I'm not sure that would help anyone make an informed trade. And I also struggle with the word profit that you use, right? And I think Tim touches on this. For a profit, the trade must close. And I don't think we have enough evidence to say any of these trades closed. No, but hypothetically, uh, if you're a trader, I mean, and if you make a trade and a few days later you're sitting on a $180 million profit, I don't know. I might take that. I mean, I may not because I may have faith that it's going to go even higher. But I might take that and be okay with it. If I'm sitting on a billion and a half dollar gain, uh, I might take that. So, uh, look, every trade has two sides. Uh, somebody who believes, for whatever reason, the S&P is going to go up. Somebody who's on the other side of it believes it's not going to go up. But, but you have to admit, in the Trump era, when we've been talking about these tariff negotiations, which seem to be on some sort of roller coaster on a never-ending basis, which no one has any idea of what really he's trying to accomplish, what we do know is that there's a heck of a lot of volatility around his pronouncements, whether they're going well or not going well. And if you go back to, you know, Biarritz, okay? He's at the G7 in Biarritz. He says the talks are back on. He's gotten a call from these Chinese leaders. They disavow it. Even his own, you know, people inside the White House saying that Trump sort of conflated several different conversations. He even says, I was trying to make the market go up. And then George Conway, no slouch, obviously he's not a big Trump fan, but he is a Wachtell Lipton partner. Uh, He makes the point that this is insider trading. Of course, it's not technically insider trading because there are no technical insider trading laws and it's all a bunch of judgments. But it is something, in my view, that the regulator should look at and not just brush off. So, and by the way, I'm not. I'm just being reportorial. People, you know, traders in the pits are telling me this. No, and, you, and you're, I think your reporting is fantastic. And it's very hard to backtest this because this is a president that talks about the market more than every other president probably combined. But 
Was there a period of time, if you look back, for example, I'm not trying to indict it, but President Obama, I think, in early 2009, I believe, said something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, but the stock market looks awfully cheap here. And again, I'm just, I'm cherry picking now, but were you able to go back in time and see if anything like this has ever happened before? So, so I mean, of course, the answer is no, I didn't do an explication de text on right. like the history of the market. And by the way, I was a banker. Okay? I wasn't a trader, but I've been doing this reporting on Wall Street now for 15 years. People call me up. Uh, they seem credible. I validate their cred- credibility. They tell me what they're hearing and seeing as experts in those pits. And so, no, did I? They never called me in 2009. They could have, or 2010 or 2011, said, You wouldn't believe what I'm seeing. They called me now because they've been watching the vicissitudes of this market go up and down and the volatility go up and down every time Trump seems to open his mouth about it. And they're noticing people making these trades timely and well-placed and making a lot of money. Are and they so, the same people? I mean, how... Because how, no, I mean, traders on no, the floor no, have an idea who's putting an order in. No. I'm just trying to understand. Well, these trade electronically. I mean, listen, yeah. I don't know why there's but, such a pushback here. I mean, like, you know, think about it. You're seeing, you're seeing a defined period well, of time, and you're seeing pops. Yeah. That June 28th was quarter end, and that's where I would push back, Bill. But I, I, yeah, I, I think the reporting said quarter. quarter end, you might have seen a massive rebalancing of a big yeah. portfolio. You see all the time on massive trading desks, you'll see Delta hedging go on in the last 15 minutes of the trading mm-hmm. day, which may be balancing off another portfolio. That being said, these are large targeted trades. Okay, they're in. They went both ways. It weren't always just long, right? right? There, there, was was some, the, there were some short, short ones. And so, when you start to think about the grift that is being charged about this administration, you say to yourself, "Okay, maybe there's there's something to this." And regulators should be looking at this because it, it seems be pretty well tied. I mean, look, the SEC has a lot of work to do. Uh, as someone that trades, I don't want anybody cheating in this market. Right. So, I think everybody feels that. I think there's a lot of work to do. You know, Bill, when I was a, uh, an intern at the Wall Street Journal ages ago, the one thing that I learned that sticks with me today is the to be sure paragraph. To be sure, the caveat in this whole thing. So as a reporter, what would you say that would be in your view? You mean to, to be, you mean, well, look, I mean, I'm, I, I, all I'm saying, there, I'm making observations. Is there one thing where you would say, right, but you would say, you know what, here's hey. where this story could fall short. Look, the, the, the story could fall short. When the regulators investigate it, when the SEC or the CFTC actually spends the time seeing who made these trades, actually has conversations with the people who did it, and they say, oh, no, I I didn't even, you know, I was on on vacation, I was traveling through Arizona, I had no idea that Trump was in China. I mean, whatever they happen to say, just like if Amazon is buying Whole Foods and Whole Foods shoots up and somebody buys a million shares... The SEC is going to call them up and say, hey, what's going? And I want to know. I want to look at your trading records. I want to see what your broker says. I want all that. They can do that. I can't do that. So if they do all that and it's perfectly fine, no harm, no foul, then fine. It's just an observation that some traders in the pits told me and I reported on it. Okay. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, guys. Vanity Fair. Up next, we'll hear from the regulator side of the story. A former SEC lawyer joins us with what he thinks of the Vanity Fair report. Stick with us. Fast Money, be right back. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Before the break, you heard from the author of Vanity Fair's bombshell expose questioning the timing of some big money trades in the futures markets. Many of those trades were executed ahead of market moving comments from President Trump. Our next guest was plugged in, listened to the entire conversation. He's got a lot to say. Let's bring in Jacob Frankel, partner at Dickinson Wright and former senior enforcement lawyer for the SEC. Jacob also worked as a U.S. federal criminal prosecutor of corruption and financial crimes. Um, Bill Cohan is also still with us just to add to the mix here. <laughs> Jacob, um, do you think these trades should be investigated? Is there enough to go on? Yes, there is enough to investigate. And I, I think the only thing that really was misleading here was the, was the headline itself. I think the way Bill summarized his story really was accurate. And that is that, you know, is that for there to be an insider trading investigation, there's usually anomalous trading in, in advance of an announcement. That announcement causes there to be a sudden price movement either up or down. And as and, and often, particularly in the equities markets, you know, you, you, the regulators tend to find that there may have been people who actually were in possession of material non-public information and, and traded on that. And the, the anomalous trading is the reason that you investigate. That is the obligation of the investigator. As Bill said in, 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 his, you know, in his segment a few minutes ago, he wasn't saying that there, was a, that there was a violation, that there are grounds to investigate. I would agree with that. And to me, it's not just the regulators who should investigate. The other proper party to investigate are the firms for which these traders worked. Because in that, in that unlikely event that there actually was a problem here, one of the things that's always stress-tested is a firm's <laughs> compliance system. And so there should be, at least on some level, a mini internal investigation in each of these firms to determine whether there was anything anomalous that gave rise to these trades. The bar in terms of opening investigation and the bar of actually finding wrongdoing, they're completely different, though, Jacob, I would assume. I would assume that the bar to prove that something was actually a crime was committed is much more difficult than simply opening the investigation. So what's your take on, based on the information that we have now, how a case would unfold? Well, m most of the time, you know, you actually have investigations that open based on some generalized information that in and of itself may not be the foundation or may not be sufficient to establish a violation. Obviously, with whistleblower programs, regulators are getting access to much more and better quality information that, that often lets them be further along in that, in that investigative process. But to get to the end game, if we're talking about a civil case, you still need to, you know, you still need to prove recklessness. You still need to prove some element of intent. You know, uh, you know, we're not talking about equities here. I mean, a lot of, a lot of trading on the, you know, when we're talking about futures trading, it, uh, the classical theories of insider trading that apply in the equities markets do not apply. It's really more of the misappropriation theory, that somebody had a duty. There was a breach of that duty. The person who traded knew about the duty and basically inherited the duty to keep information confidential and then traded. I think the bar here to bring even a civil case is very high. But again, a lot of investigations open, they're pursued, and then closed. I think that's ultimately what happens here if there is an investigation by the regulators. So I'm sorry, Jacob, but let me, let me just get this straight. Uh, this, w this sort of investigation, a, a case would be built. It wouldn't be an insider trading case. So there wouldn't necessarily have to be an insider involved in terms of disseminating the information to the trader or the group of traders. 
in the classical sense that we think about using the you know, using the Whole Foods example with with Amazon, you know that, that Bill used before, that scenario would not apply in the futures market markets. But the misappropriation theory, the fundamental concept here is: was there fraud in connection with the tra- trading? That's probably the most simplistic way to look at it. That's really how the CFTC is approaching its cases. Um, you know, post Dodd Frank, it established an insider trading you know rule but again that talked about fraud and deception it wasn't really the classical insider trading as we look at as we look out on the equity side so yes it is not the classic corporate insider but if we look at cases that involve political insiders obviously if if for some reason in the course of an investigation that someone was able to find that an advisor uh, to a senior government official who knew that these announcements were going to be made and that person picked up the phone and called somebody, that person knew about the duty, yeah, that's a game changer. But it's unlikely that that's what we're going to find. But that's really what would need to be found for there to actually be a case. Bill, it sounds like if if they were really able to make that link, that would be a whole other story for you. It would be. That would be a blockbuster. That would get people on the street uh, talking. Uh, look, I appreciate what uh, Jacob said uh, v- very much. And, and I've always frankly wondered, you know, I know the insider trading laws apply to the equity markets. But obviously, as we've seen, there's a ton of money that could be made on whatever it is, misappropriating money in the futures markets. Same with the bond market. The bond market is, what, four times the size of the stock market, right? We know that there's a lot of information conveyed in the bond market, and for some reason that's outside insider trading laws too. I've never understood why insider trading laws, such as they are, exist only to, uh, in, the, in the equities market. They should apply, obviously, to the bond market and the futures market because information is valuable and is obviously key to making huge or money, amounts of money or losing money. Jacob, last word, and, and I'll put that question directly to you. Do you think those insider trading laws should apply to the other markets out there well, aside from the equities markets? Well, that, well the, the answer is they, they actually do apply. And in, in, the, in the CFTC in 2015 brought its first insider trading case involving an oil trader, brought another one in 2016. I think the CFTC clearly is looking to expand that into, into tipper-tippy liability. But it's really more about the theory of the fraud, the theory of the insider trading that is different when we're talking about the futures markets. And I think there is a framework that does apply, but I think you have to look at the fundamental nature of both markets, equities versus futures, and really see, identify and accept how they differ fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And that's what establishes the basis for determining whether you would or would not have insider trading. But here, ultimately, I think, you know, the only thing that was really misleading was the headline, um, you know, to, to sort of create the firestorm. I don't think this actually rises to a level where we're going to find a duty, a breach of a duty under the misappropriation theory that will result in a case. All right. We're going to leave it there. Fascinating discussion. Thank you both, Jacob Frankel, and our thanks again to Bill Cohen. Up next, big bets on software lay out the top stock picks from Wall Street's brightest minds at this year's Sone Conference. Stay with us. We will be right back. Up next, Coca-Cola earnings on deck, and options traders are betting the soda giant will pop on the results. We'll break down all the action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Consumer giant Coca-Cola reports earnings before the bell tomorrow. The beverage behemoth has seen some refreshing gains this year when the market gets a taste of tomorrow's results. Options traders are betting that Coke... 
could fizz even higher. Oh, Dan man. is here to crack open the action. Uh, yeah, so here, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the At The Money Straddle and Coca-Cola at 54 bucks. It's $1.50. That's about 2.8% of the stock price. That is the one-day implied move for Coke after the earnings tomorrow morning. Call volume is one and a half times um, that of puts, so um, a little uh, greater than expected. On average, the stock has moved 4.5% over the last four quarters. That's actually a big move. Interestingly enough, Mel said something, bad pun, about the gains in the stock or whatever. It actually underperforms the market right now. It's up 14%. It's down about 4% from uh, its recent highs. Look at that chart. That's the one year. Um, it had a nice ramp this year, but again, like we were talking about Procter, below that uptrend. Sorry to step on your toes there, big guy. Um, below that uptrend. And let's go to the five-year. You know, this one, kind of interesting. If we get a rollover in Staples, that thing's going back to 51. That's the 200-day moving average. That was the breakout from earlier this year. You have a storied uh, past when it comes to Coke. Yeah, I love Coke. I've been arguing with Dan about Coke for a long time, and I think I've been right. But, I mean, the the, the more important (laughs) thing is what has changed about Coca-Cola in the last two years that's allowed it to re-rate. And maybe it's underperformed a bit, but it certainly had a moment where it was a stock that never grew on the top line. Look, they've they've restructured the company. They've gotten the bottlers in order. Uh, If you think that vitamin drinks and the new way people are consuming all types of athletic drinks and sports drinks and nutrition drinks and Coca-Cola is not going to be at the center of that, are you kidding me? This is a global brand. It should be trading at a high multiple, and I think it's a global company, so I stay long. What do you say about the dance charting here? I think Dan's got it right here. Wow. <laughs> right? So, listen, uh, we've seen a 4 or 5% drawdown on the stock. I think there's another 4 or 5 to go. 51 and change is, I think, a timely long, but we're not there yet. It's a good long-term chart. There's hey, no man, doubt about hey, that. I'm good over good, here. I'm good fine. long-term I mean, chart. If you guys want a high five over there, <laughs> that's, you know, it's... Uh, I think there's work to do before it's Bible. <laughs> It is expensive. I mean, even to, you know, 24 times forward earnings with an 8% EPS growth, mm-hmm. as, Dan would you, say, but, as Dan would say, uh, knock yourself out. What are you paying for McDonald's? What are you paying for Starbucks? What are you paying for every one of these? I get the final word here word, real quickly. I think word. six months ago you liked it for the CBD opportunity. They're not going to be in CBD okay, anytime soon. Yeah, All right, that, that hit home. All right, thanks for the action, Dan. Uh, full show Friday, <laughs> tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trade. Welcome back. I'm Eamon Javers at the White House, where we have a significant reversal now from the White House. A new statement from Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney saying, uh, once again, the media has decided to misconstrue my comments to advance a biased and political witch hunt against President Trump. Let me be clear, there was absolutely no quid pro quo between Ukrainian military aid and any investigation into the 2016 election. This new statement, Melissa, is the chief of staff walking back a statement that he made earlier today in the press briefing room suggesting exactly that. Melissa, back over to you. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers at the White House with the very latest. That does it for us here on Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. <laughs> 